0: Welcome to Local Motion, a weekly KVNF production that takes a deeper look into our community's public affairs. I'm your host, Cassie Canust. Today, in recognition of Latine Heritage Month and as a Latina reporter myself, we'll take a look at some of my favorite KVNF stories highlighting members of our Latine community.
1: These guys work from sunup to sundown along with the farmer. You know, they have to endure severe weather that here in Colorado, you just don't know what you're going to get.
0: Later in the show, we'll hear from three first-generation leaders in our community as they share stories with KVNF's
2: Laura Palmisano. It's really helped me to try to educate people and bring awareness to it to stop the generational trauma, to stop this from happening. From KVNF, this is Local Motion.
0: Our first story is a bit of a throwback to my earlier months with KVNF. In this May segment of local motion, I had the opportunity to ask, what does equity in healthcare look like for Latinos? And Julissa Soto was ready to answer. Soto has dedicated more than two decades of her life to accomplishing equity in the Latina communities. Today, you'll hear an excerpt of my conversation with Soto, a health equity and social justice consultant and advocate for Latino immigrant equality, inclusion, and health equity in Colorado and throughout the United
3: States.
4: Thank you, KBNF Mountain Grown Community Radio, for inviting me today. I'm super excited. I'm going to say this in Spanish too, and then we'll continue with my interview. Gracias a Radio Comunitaria KBNF por haberme invitado. It's a placer estar aquí con todos ustedes. what would you like to know? First, I'd love to know a little bit more about yourself. I
0: understand you have a very interesting story about how you got here.
4: Like I came here, I came to the United States twenty four years ago. I crossed the border in the trunk of a car. I came here undocumented, uneducated, it didn't speak a word in English. So when I crossed the border, my life begins, right? You come to a new world, a new city, a new state, and you just don't know what to do. It, you're just shocked because it's a whole new world. And the, the stories you hear, the United States is the perfect place. And all of that was kind of shocking for me because when I came to the United States, it was very difficult in the way to navigate not only systems in my own life. So my story began. To 24 years ago here in Colorado, born and raised in Michoacan, Mexico, and my passion is the immigrant community. But of course, everyone else is my passion. So that's where my story began.
0: And pretty important to know that, especially with the work that you do. I've noticed you have a lot of work in, as you mentioned, with the Latino community, especially focusing on equity in the medical community as well. What are your priorities in your work and what should people know?
4: Once I started working in the public health field, I started understanding how difficult these systems were to navigate systems that in the first place were not made for us to navigate. So I really feel that a lot of us talk about equity, but don't leave equity. We say, oh, let's communities, especially federal qualified low-income clinics or providers that they said, oh, we want to help the Latino community, but they don't come to us. No, we don't come to you because we have been traumatized for years and years the way that you treat us for example, just a couple hours ago I was at a restaurant asking about a certain clinic and the the waitress told me not to go to that clinic because in there nobody speaks English and and they treat you very wrong and and they're very rude so I was kind of shocked by their answers but at the same time I understand that I was there once upon a time also when I used to go to clinics or low income clinics I got treated like that, you know, that I was low income, I don't deserve good treatment, I'm not going to get a five star treatment, I'm coming asking for help, which now I understand how federal qualified low-income clinics operate. They get a lot of funding from state, federal, and those clinics are for all of us that pay taxes. And even for the ones that they don't pay taxes, they still pay taxes when they're buying milk, when they're buying their groceries. So they still pay taxes, right? So the system should be treating us a little bit better. So when you got me talking about equity, I can go on and on and talk about equity and what the systems don't do, especially in Colorado. I feel that in Colorado, we have failed the Latino community when it comes to vaccines. When it comes to vaccines, we're vaccinated under 50 percent when it comes to COVID. We're 44th in the nation when it comes to MMR vaccines. But therefore, we say that we're equitable, that we're treating people the same way in here and that everybody gets fair treatment. That's not necessarily true because why we're still under 50 percent in the state of Colorado and everyone else is almost a 90 percent. I want somebody to answer that question. It's not that my community is tired with vaccines. No, we are tired of being mistreated, but not with vaccines. We want vaccines. We want to save old children. So for me, it is difficult. For me, I understand that we have to work with systems, but I don't know
0: if systems want to work with us. According to 2020 census data, Hispanics living in the United States represent almost 19% of the total U.S. population, making up the nation's second largest racial or ethnic group after non-Hispanic whites. The 2022 U.S. Latino GDP report found that if Latinos living in the United States were an independent country, the U.S. Latino GDP would be the fifth largest GDP in the world, even larger than the GDPs of the United Kingdom, India, or France.
4: We keep talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and everybody runs to hire a diversity, equity, and inclusion person, right? If you're Black, you're Latino, you're gay, then you fit in there. You fit in that profile of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And then they check that mark and say, oh, we're so diverse. We're about equity. Look, we have one person in the equity department and it's like 80 of them, 80 of the white folks. So how equitable we've been here, you know, and I just don't understand, you know, those words. Americans love to express the buzz words before it was health disparities and it was determinants of health and all those buzzwords that keep changing, but no action happening in my community. So I just don't think that we should keep creating new and new and new words, and we are not going to lead by it. We need to get into the community, put our plans into action. I'm calling all those health departments that they take years and years writing a health equity plan. So when it's going to be time to put all your plans into action, surveying my community. Another survey, another survey. Why you don't get tired of surveying the community when the community already had tell you many times that we get mistreated and it's no fair treatment in here. What else do you want to hear in order for you to believe that you are the ones that need to change? The systems need to change. Systems are failing us. We're not failing the system.
0: That was Juli Soto, Latino Advocate for Health Equity in Colorado. Next, we turn to a leader in our community who represents the LGBTQ community through a Latina lens. Denver Pride is one of the biggest LGBTQ pride celebrations in the country, and it draws in more than half a million people over the annual weekend. And earlier this summer, Delta Colorado had its own representation in Denver. Delta Pride's founder and leader Javier signs, also known as Javier Danvike, performed at Denver Pride Center Stage. For signs, being able to perform in one of the largest LGBTQ celebrations amidst the challenges facing his community was a dream come true for the small town Latina trans man. Here's that story. That's a crowd of over half a million people cheering at Denver Pride. And they're cheering for Delta Colorado's Javier Signs, also known as Javier Van Dyke. Javier is the founder of Delta Pride and is the head of the Van Dyke drag family. He says the experience of performing at Denver Pride was a dream come true for a small town trans man.
5: It started a few months ago. I saw that they were doing some auditions, and it's something that I dreamed about doing. And now that I've turned 50 years old, I kind of put it on my bucket list and, you know, kind of figure I'm getting up there. And I was given the opportunity to perform on the Sunday center stage, which was, you know, that was the whole main thing is being on the Marcio's Sunday performances. It was pretty amazing.
0: Javier performed two songs during his Denver performance on Saturday in colorful fashion lip-syncing to Queen's Break Free and Chris Hausman's Drag Queen.
5: I thought that was important because, of course, being a transgender male, breaking free is pretty important to show that, you know, in a positive light, for, you know, everybody in the community to see it in a positive light. And the song Drag Queen, because drag performers have been put, you know, there's been a horrible spin put on them, and I wanted to show there's nothing horrible about the performances that some of us do, you know. Of course, being absolutely nervous and freaking out, I looked out in the crowd and I saw some amazing people and some familiar faces and the nerves kind of went away. And, you know, now that I'm talking about it, all the emotions are coming to me of the incredible experience, being able to see my friends, especially, and then getting messages from people telling me, you know, even when they called your name, they knew who you were. And so being, you know, a small town boy, being on center stage in Denver Pride with half a million people there. And, you know, I I was told like 8,000 people that are fitting in the bowl right there in front of center stage. You know, for some people to know who I was was pretty amazing. And so the song started and they sang back to me. It was the dream of Freddie Mercury. He sings live, and they sing back to him, and I got that experience, and it was incredible to be seen.
0: Javier also founded an initiative called Saved by Drag. It's what he calls social activism voiced by the entertainers of drag. He also says performing has saved his life.
5: It helped me be okay with who I am as a transgender male and helped me understand, because I had no education There was nobody around me that looked like me or could help me to understand what I was going through and what I was feeling. What I'm trying to do is make sure that people understand that we're people too. And when we perform, it's not always negative. It's not always perverted. And, you know, I think of it as a genre. You know, sometimes you take your kids to these movies because they're okay for kids and you don't take your kids to other movies because they're not okay for kids. That's the same with drag. I have performers that are youth, and I was a youth once, and so I just want people to see the truth about what drag really is. It's not disgusting, and it saved my life. It helped me be me, and it can help me to help other people.
0: For more information about Delta Pride, visit the organization's website at deltapride.com. Late last month, I spent a very colorful afternoon covering Agricola, a tribute and celebration of our region's diverse agricultural workers. Many of those workers are Latine. I spoke with Ángeles Mendez, president of the Western Colorado Migrant and Rural Coalition, who reminded the community that migrant ag workers are sacrificing more than ever when it comes to producing our food, and oftentimes they can't even afford the food they're picking. Olathe Main Street was alive and bustling last week for Festival Agricola, or Agriculture Festival, as the community celebrated our region's Latine Ag workers. The street was closed off for the festival, playing host to regional vendors dedicated to Ag and Latine advocacy work. Families and kids played games, rock climbed, shopped and learned while eating grilled Mexican street corn and sipping horchata with a live band to boot. But the event isn't just fun and games. It's also an opportunity to learn more about migrant agricultural workers. Angeles Mendez, president of the Western Colorado Migrant and Rural Coalition, reminded the community that migrant ag workers are sacrificing more than ever when it comes to producing our food. And oftentimes, they can't even afford the food they're picking.
1: I think, you know, in the past, we, we're just very spoiled, to be honest. We are very spoiled when it comes to, we don't think, where does the food come from when we go to the store? We always think, oh, there's the farmer, you know? And the farmer has so many challenges, including finding people here in the States to pick up the food. So they have to, you know, um, put advertisements in several different states to find people to come work for them. And then after they say, well, I can't find any anyone, it's how they allow them to bring people from other countries such as Mexico. And I'm telling you what, these guys work from sunup to sundown, along with the farmer. You know, they have to endure severe weather that here in Colorado, you just don't know what you're going to get. So they have to go through that, coming from a place that their weather might not be similar to being here in the mountains. The altitude might be different. So all those things that this gentleman have to endure, and on top of that, in the past years, we used to have families migrating together. Now it doesn't happen. Now we just have guys coming here alone and leaving their families for several months at a time. They don't, some, some of them, the majority of them don't speak English, um, don't know anyone here other than a farmer. So it's it can be very challenging mentally. I think mentally challenging, it's, it's very, very difficult for them. I mean, it's very difficult for us, especially, I mean, we learned that during the pandemic, we didn't like to be alone. It's like, imagine them when they don't know anybody here. I mean, they don't have their family close. So all those little things, um, I feel that we take for granted sometimes. And this festival was just telling, them, thank you. You know, that Western Slope appreciates you. Thank you for coming and picking up our food. You know, we, we wouldn't have food. <laughs>
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Locomotion on KVNF. Today, in recognition of Latina Heritage Month, we're taking a look at some of my favorite KVNF stories highlighting members of our Latina community. And as a Latina reporter myself, I understand that our culture's history and impact runs deep and rich. This includes throughout our region. So next, we'll turn to KVNF's Laura Palmasano as she highlights a few first-generation Latines in our community. In this first profile, we hear from Tracy Gallegos. He's the Director of Access, Opportunity, and Family Partnerships for the Mesa County Valley School District 51. Gallegos speaks to Laura about his family's history in the Southwest, growing up in Delta County, and how his Chicano upbringing has influenced his career path in education and school administration.
6: I consider myself a Chicano. And, you know, my family's been around the region for a really long time. The Gallegos family, at least my clan, originated in the Piñasco Taos area of New Mexico. You know, my grandfather in the early 1900s, I guess about 1925-ish, made his way from that area to Colorado and moved around the state doing a variety of, of work, and then he ended up starting his family, and he settled in the Delta area.
3: Your family has been in the Southwest since before the Treaty of Hildago was signed in 1848, marking the end of the war between Mexico and the U.S. Please tell us about that part of your family's history.
6: Over time, what happened was the treaty changed the border significantly, and the newly um, part of the United States, where my family's uh, land and homestead was, really... Changed ownership when that treaty was signed. It kind of changed the realities of their lived experience. You know, my grandfather, along with all his siblings, ended up kind of dispersing and uh, trying to find a, a new way to to live life as a as an American. However, being a Spanish speaking person and trying to navigate that life in the in the 1920s and 30s, there was a lot of, of challenges that he had to overcome in order to to have some dignity while he was raising his family.
3: What does being Chicano mean to you?
6: What it means to me is just being really proud of being one of the original people to walk this land we're at right now and where I live and having a beautiful language and a beautiful culture and feeling at home and making sure that everyone understands that we belong here.
3: How did growing up in Delta County shape your experiences as a Chicano?
6: I have a lot of love for my hometown Delta was a place where I was raised by an awesome family and I had some great friends and, and people around me. Having said that, it was also challenging because Delta in the 80s and 90s, there was like a just an interesting mix of cultures there. But the Chicano population that I was around, there was plenty of us, but we had a lot less opportunity than our Anglo counterparts, specifically when talking about like educational opportunity. My friends and my peer group, we faced challenges in the education system. Many of my friends were misunderstood, and I believe there are some cultural factors around that. They became disengaged in school. A lot of them ended up leaving school before graduating. Hardly any of them ended up going on to pursue post-secondary educational opportunities.
3: How did you overcome those challenges?
6: I was kind of always driven. I knew that I needed to improve my situation. And at that time, I think in the early 90s, it was definitely promoted that, you know, the way to do that is through higher education. And so I had a drive to do that. I had plenty of people that were rooting for me to, to get there as far as friends and family. And I had plenty of support through mentorship and through some, some really um, good people along the way.
3: How has your Chicano upbringing shaped your career path?
6: I got into education Because of my educational experience growing up, I really wanted to make sure that I was there advocating for students that were like me, who looked like me, who spoke kind of a Spanglish language that I spoke growing up, and who could better understand these students and better advocate for them being successful in school. I decided to become an elementary school teacher. I was a bilingual, bicultural elementary school teacher when I graduated, and I went into Aurora Public Schools to begin my educational journey. After serving in that area for nine years and really gravitating towards helping our Spanish-speaking students and families understand the educational system, I ended up moving back home to the West Slope. That's really where I felt like I needed to be because I wanted to make sure that I was advocating for kids in the same area where I grew up. Because of the work I did in Aurora, I decided to pursue my graduate degree in school administration so that I can make a bigger impact at the school level on how students are being treated and how families were being communicated to. Did that for nine years and really enjoyed that. And then an opportunity came up for me to, to work in the Migrant Education Program. And I did that for four years uh, as a director, a regional director for that program. I love the program because really what you do with Migrant Education is you help bring opportunity And make sure that students who either the students or families are working in temporary or seasonal agricultural work are not penalized for their lifestyle migrant families move around a lot in order to help cultivate and harvest the food that we all eat it's a great program to make sure that we're bringing resources and adequate educational opportunities to to those students because when you move around a lot and you don't actually speak the language very well, school was pretty hard. You know, th- that was a program that I just fell in love with and I would have done it forever, probably, but, um, an opportunity came up to participate in a newly formed position for equity and inclusion for district 51. A, a few years ago, I was drawn to that because it really was a- an opportunity to work in a school district with 20,000 students and really figure out how to collaborate with the leadership of the district. To really start getting some understanding around adjustments we needed to make to make sure that we were starting to bring opportunity for the students who historically weren't performing the way they should have been performing.
0: That was Tracy Gallegos. Now let's turn our attention to Marisela by Celestino. She is a first generation Latine and Cora Indian. She's also the assistant director for Project Hope. Gunnison's Resource Center for Victims of Domestic Violence, Sexual Assault, and Human Trafficking. Ballesteros Celestino speaks to Laura about growing up in the Gunnison Valley, staying connected to her indigenous heritage and her work as an advocate.
2: My parents grew up in Nayarit, Mexico, three hours away from each other, so just over the hill from each other, but they met in Montrose, which is funny for me (laughs) that they were kind of meant to be in a way. Their stories shaped me. They would tell me and remind me about how they came here all the time. Just kind of relating how different their perspectives on life were or their perspectives of responsibility. Just everything were just because of the way they grew up. I feel like being a first generation kid, there's a lot of culture really instilled into you. Regarding the lifestyle that they lived when they were in Mexico and the perseverance, I would say, of trying to keep that lifestyle going while living in the States. But then as a kid growing up in, for example, Gunnison Valley, which is completely different, it was very hard to kind of mix them together growing up. But then you realize it's just you're creating a new kind of culture as a first generation baby.
3: What are some of the challenges you faced as a first-generation Latina?
2: So you also got to consider that my parents are of the indigenous culture. So we are descendants of Aztecs, the Cora. So being indigenous, there is, first of all, that mindset of being instilled that we are 100% indigenous. You need to keep your culture. You need to keep your language. It's because it's dying and you need to be proud of who you are. So having that in your mind, but also kind of realizing that, okay, I'm also American and there's many different opportunities that I have that a lot of Indigenous women do not have or a lot of Indigenous women are not taught to have that kind of mindset or exposed to the mindset of being able to do what you want. And you don't have to be. Like a mom, you don't have to be in a family. You can be your own business owner. You can work. You can be fully independent and still be an excellent role model to everybody.
3: How are you keeping your Cora heritage alive? My dad, first of
2: all, being very very strict, he laid out this rule where at home, so at the family home, we speak Cora, and if there's people that come over that speak Spanish, we speak Spanish, and everywhere else, we can speak English. But at home, we speak ora. It's just been a strict rule that my dad has instilled in the family to make sure that we are keeping the language alive. And all of my dad's family is still in Mexico. I only have two cousins from his side that is here. So talking to my grandma over there and just having really being true first generation kid where not a lot of your family is here in the States. So trying to have that connection and want to have that connection with your family that's in a whole nother country. It just takes that extra step of making those calls, making that connection to understand why your parents are trying to instill this culture on you that you're not necessarily exposed to all the time. I feel like it's important to make sure you make those connections with your family members. And really just, you have to have that inspiration and want to explore who you are, especially as an Indigenous person, like, what your past is, what the culture is, to understand why your parents are the way they are and why your parents behave the way they do so that you can understand their perspective. And so you can, in a way, mix it to where you grew also grew up in America and you have all these other insp- like inspirations coming in different angles from your friends, from the American culture, from other role models
3: that are older to even teachers. How has your upbringing influenced your career choice in working with abuse survivors?
2: Well, first of all, it affected me to the core of just truly understanding and seeing things through a perspective of like, not necessarily like anger or fear, but really just trying to understand what is going on and understand trauma. And it relates to anybody. I would say I don't want it to just specify into Indigenous culture because anybody can be a victim of abuse, but in Indigenous cultures all over the world, it's pretty even. Both male and females are abused at the same rates, both sexually and physically, mentally, like, and it's just become generational traumas to where I don't know one person and tell me if you know one person that has never been exposed to domestic violence or sexual assault that is Cora. So it's really helped me to try to educate people and bring awareness to it to stop the generational trauma, to stop this from happening. Because nobody deserves this. Is there a large Cora population in the Gunnison Valley? There's a huge population. It, there's also Quoras within Montrose. In Denver, more like Commerce City area, Delta area as well, Olayta. There's some in Grand Junction and MAC area as well. I would say the first ones came about 30 to 40 years ago. And now all their kids are around my age, if not like in their early 30s to mid 30s. And now we're starting to get into these positions to be able to provide assistance and be of use to the community essentially. And to be role models to generations that are younger than us to also do the
3: same. That was Maricela Ballestero Celestino. For KVNF, I'm Laura Palmasono.
0: Thanks for joining us on Local Motion today as we honor Latinas in our region in recognition of Latine Heritage Month. You can find this episode and archive episodes online at kvnf.org. This has been Local Motion. For KVNF, I'm Cassie Canoost.